Humana's President and Chief Executive Officer, and Susan Diamond, Chief Financial Officer, will discuss our second quarter 2022 results and our updated financial outlook for 2022. Following these prepared remarks, we will open up the lines for a question and answer session with industry analysts. Joe Ventura, our Chief Legal Officer, will also be joining Bruce and Susan for the Q&A session. We encourage the investing public and media to listen to both management's prepared remarks and the related Q&A with analysts. This call is being recorded for replay purposes. That replay will be available on the Investor Relations page of Humana's website, Humana.com, later today. Before we begin our discussion, I need to advise call participants of our cautionary statement. Certain of the matters discussed in this conference call are forward-looking and involve a number of risk and uncertainties. Actual results could differ materially. Investors are advised to read the detailed risk factors discussed in our latest Form 10-K and other filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission in our second quarter 2022 earnings press release as they relate to forward-looking statements and to note in particular that these forward-looking statements could be impacted by risks related to the spread of in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Our forward-looking statements should therefore be considered in light of these additional uncertainties and risks, along with the other risks discussed in our SEC filings. We undertake no obligation to publicly address or update any forward-looking statements in future filings or communications regarding our business or results. Today's press release, our historical financial news releases, and our filings with the SEC are all also available on our investor relations site. Call participants should note that today's discussion includes financial measures that are not in accordance with gen generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP. Management's explanation for the use of these non-GAAP measures and reconciliations of GAAP to non-GAAP financial measures are included in today's press release. Finally, any reference to earnings per share or EPS made during this conference call refer to diluted earnings per common share. With that, I'll turn the call over to Bruce Broussard. Thank you, Lisa, and good morning, and thank you for joining us. Today, Humana reported financial results for the second quarter of 2022 that reflected our solid fundamentals and strong execution across the enterprise. In the second quarter, our adjusted earnings per share was $8.67, which was above our initial expectations. Our outperformance in the quarter was driven by broad-based strength across the organization. Our updated full-year guidance of approximately $24.75 represents compelling earnings growth of over 20% over our 2021 results. Susan will share additional detail on our second quarter performance and our full year outlook in a moment. As we look ahead, we are confident that we continue to deliver strong results as a leader in Medicare Advantage and value-based care delivery. Over the last several months, we've taken deliberate steps to meaningfully advance our strategy. In our Medicare Advantage business, we finalized our 2023 product strategy as reflected in our bids and are confident the investments we've made will significantly enhance the value proposition of our offerings. These investments were supported by the enterprise commitment to delivering on our billion-dollar value creation initiative, which we expect to significantly improve membership growth in 2023, while still delivering compelling earnings growth consistent 
with our long-term target. Beyond our product investments, we've worked with our external sales partners to enhance recruiting, training, and incentive programs, which we believe will lead to improved member retention. We've enhanced the way we work with over all of our 40 external care partner centers, partners, creating increased alignment by linking incentives to quality and retention metrics. And many of our partners have also revised agent level incentives to emphasize retention. We continue to see an increase in member satisfaction year over year, demonstrating the positive impact of our efforts. We held our ex annual external sales partner conference last week and are encouraged by the optimism and excitement expressed by our distribution partners on our commitment to return to market leading growth and in the specific investments we've made. We are also making significant progress in ad advancing our Medicaid strategy. We received notification of a contract award from Louisiana in June. We are very proud of the team's success articulating Humana's unique Medicaid capabilities and our ability to organically grow our Medicaid footprint. We are actively preparing for the Ohio contract implementation later this year, as well as the implementation in Louisiana, which is expected in early 2023. In addition, we continue to actively work towards procuring additional awards in our priority states. Within our healthcare services segment, we continue to expand our center well assets. We established a second joint venture with Welsh Carson that will deploy up to $1.2 billion of capital to develop up to 100 new center well senior primary care clinics between 2023 and 2025. In the home business, we began expansion of the value-based model in June with the implementation in Virginia, increasing the number of MA members covered by the model to 331,000, a 22% increase. These actions are building significant momentum within the organization and position us for continued strong growth and leadership in the delivery of integrated value-based care. Turning to our billion-dollar value creation initiative, We've made strong progress towards our target and now have line of sight into initiatives valued at over $900 million in 2023 in design, execute, or full realization stages. This is up from $575 million when we last provided an update in April. We are confident in our ability to fully deliver against the important commitment and ultimately realize $1 billion of value in 2023. As I've just highlighted, we've made meaningful progress advancing our strategy in recent months, resulting in significant expansion of our healthcare service businesses and further strengthening our Medicare Advantage and Medicaid platforms. In addition to our strategy advancement, the work completed on our value creation initiative has led to an organizational simplification that enables us to accelerate our previously planned organizational streamlining. Beginning in 2023, we will re realign the company into two distinct units, insurance services and Centerwell. Insurance services will be made up of the businesses that currently sit in the retail and group and specialty segments, 
while CenterWell re represent the current healthcare service segment. We believe this simpler structure will create greater collaboration across our insurance and CenterWell business and will accelerate work that is underway to centralize and integrate operations within the organization. The realignment also expands the scope of authority for leaders and allows us to operate with greater agility and focus and increasing capture synergies across our portfolio. Importantly, we are committed to providing the transparency you are accustomed to receiving from Humana when we transition to the new segments to ensure you have the information to, needed to follow our progress and understand the economics of our material businesses. To lead this new segment, we've launched an external search for a president of insurance and enterprise services. We are targeting candidates who can look across insurance business and key centralized platforms and services driving enterprise level strategic execution. We also look for this individual to bring deep experience in running complex organizations. A key focus of this role will be to help us continue to simplify our structure, to make us more agile, and to further improve our ability to increase synergies between our businesses and improve outcomes for our customers. We anticipate naming this individual by the end of the year. As announced in our 8K this morning, after a long successful career at Humana, Alan Wheatley will transition from his role at the end of the year. Alan has had a distinguished 31-year career at Humana, and I'm grateful for his significant contribution to the organization. We are confident that momentum Alan and team have created throughout 2022 in the Medicare business will drive a successful 2023 AEP. I appreciate Alan's commitment to Humana and am pleased that he has agreed to serve as a strategic advisor into next year to ensure a seamless transition. Alan has developed a strong leadership team within the retail organization, and we are fortunate to have the opportunity for these talented and experienced leaders to expand their responsibilities. Effective August 5th, George Renaden will take on the new role of President of Medicare, and Susan Smith, Senior VP, will take on an expanded role of leading our enterprise services, which includes our clinical, consumer experience, STARS, and Medicare risk adjustment teams. John Barger will continue leading our Medicare, Medicaid organization in his role as president of Medicaid. George, Susan, and John, who have 55 years plus of combined experience across different functions at Humana, will report to Alan into the new role of president is filled. In addition, Sue Schick will continue to lead our group and specialty segment business also ultimately reporting to the new president of insurance and enterprise services when the segment realignment is finalized in 2023. In conclusion, I would leave you with the following. First, we are pleased with the momentum we have executing our strategy, our strong year-to-date results, positive outlook for the remainder of the year, and in the significant progress we've made in our billion-dollar value creation initiative to improve membership growth for 2023. Second, we are confident that the evolution of our organizational structure will accelerate the advancement of our strategy and result in a more efficient and integrated organization. 
And finally, we remain confident in our ability to drive compelling returns for our shareholders. We invite you to join us at our virtual investor update on September 15th, where we plan to give you more insight into our go-forward strategy and our positioning for continued success. We will provide you with a deeper view into our attractive financial outlook and appropriate KPIs, our leadership position in the industry, and our long-term strategy, including additional detail into our home and primary care businesses. With that, I'll turn the call over to Susan. Thank you, Bruce, and good morning, everyone. I will start by echoing Bruce's confidence in our current year performance the steps we have taken to improve membership growth in 2023, and our ability to drive compelling returns for our shareholders. Our second quarter 2022 adjusted earnings per share of $8.67 represents 26% growth over second quarter 2021 and is approximately $1 higher than our previous expectations. The favorable results in the quarter were supported by strong performance across many of our lines of business and were driven primarily by lower than anticipated medical cost trends in our individual Medicare Advantage and Medicaid businesses, partially offset by higher than expected non-inpatient costs in group Medicare Advantage. We also experienced lower than anticipated administrative costs, some of which was timing in nature. Importantly, I want to reiterate that utilization in our core individual Medicare Advantage business is running favorable to expectations. The lower utilization trends and lack of COVID headwinds seen to date give us confidence in raising our full year adjusted EPS guide by 25 cents to approximately $24.75 while still maintaining a 50 cent EPS COVID headwind for the back half of the year. In addition, the revised guide contemplates an investment of approximately $0.75 cents EPS in additional marketing and distribution in the back half of the year to further support our improved 2023 Medicare Advantage product offerings. Finally, the revised guide covers $0.65 cents EPS solution related to the pending hospice divestiture versus the $0.50 cents contemplated in our previous guide, which is expected to close in the third quarter. Our updated full-year guidance reflects a compelling 20% growth in adjusted earnings for 2022 while funding additional investments to support our long-term growth. If we see additional favorability emerge in the back half of the year, including the remaining $0.50 cent in embedded COVID headwind, we will be prudent in balancing further investments in support of long-term growth and additional shareholder returns in 2022. We are focused on maximizing long-term value and will be transparent in our approach. With respect to quarterly earnings seasonality, at this time, we expect third quarter earnings to be approximately 25% of our full year estimate. Finally, as Bree shared, we have made significant progress toward our $1 billion value creation plan. Actions during the quarter resulted in certain one-time costs of $203 million which have been adjusted for non-GAAP purposes. These expenses were primarily driven by consolidation and retirement of technology assets during the quarter, resulting in more efficient operations and lower investment requirements going forward. As we continue to advance the value creation plan, we expect to incur additional one-time costs in the back half of the year 
which will also be adjusted for non-GAAP purposes. With that, I will now provide additional details on our second quarter performance by segment, beginning with retail. Medicare Advantage membership growth and revenue are trending in line with expectations. As previously mentioned, total medical costs in our individual Medicare Advantage business ran favorable to expectations in the second quarter. We continue to see lower than anticipated inpatient utilization, partially offset by higher inpatient unit costs, while non-inpatient costs were slightly favorable to expectations. With respect to intra-year development, you will recall that our first quarter estimates considered the higher unit costs experienced in the fourth quarter of 2021. We were encouraged to see the first quarter restate favorably and have seen some moderation in inpatient unit costs relative to our previous estimates, while non-inpatient costs also restated slightly lower. With respect to COVID, we have seen an uptick in cases in recent weeks, but hospitalization rates remain lower than we have seen in previous surges. While we are not concerned with the utilization patterns observed to date, we acknowledge the continued uncertainty related to the pandemic and therefore maintained 50 cents of COVID contingency in our revised EPS guidance. We are pleased with the performance of our individual Medicare Advantage business to date and remain on track to deliver at least 50 basis points of improvement in pre-tax margin in 2022. Group Medicare Advantage non-inpatient costs were higher in the quarter than our initial expectations, in part due to higher surgical volumes, which we have assumed will continue for the remainder of the year. In 2021, we saw more significant depressed utilization in group Medicare than individual Medicare and expected some normalization in 2022. While group Medicare inpatient costs are consistent with our expectations year to date, non-inpatient costs have been higher in recent months, some of which may be reflective of pent-up demand post the Omicron surge. We will continue to monitor emerging group Medicare trends to determine if the higher than initially expected utilization continues as currently contemplated in our full year guide, or if we ultimately see the trends moderate. Our Medicaid business performed well in the quarter, experiencing lower than expected medical costs. We updated our full year Medicaid membership guidance from a range of down 25,000 to 50,000 to a range of up 75,000 to 100,000 to reflect the extension of the public health emergency to mid-October. We increased our retail segment revenue guidance by 350 million at the midpoint from a range of 81.2 to 82.2 billion to a range of 81.7 billion to 82.4 billion, primarily reflecting the increase in Medicaid membership expectations for the year. Despite the increase in expected Medicaid membership for the year, which carries a higher benefit ratio, as well as the higher than anticipated non-inpatient cost in group Medicare, we have maintained our original full year retail benefit ratio guidance as outperformance in our individual Medicare Advantage business is providing an offset in the segments. Group and specialty segment results were slightly favorable for the quarter, largely driven by the specialty business and lower dental utilization trends in particular. As previously shared, we are focused on margin stability in the employer group medical business near term, and as a result of rating actions taken in the back half of 2021 to incorporate expected ongoing COVID costs we are experiencing higher attrition in our fully insured group medical business than originally anticipated. 
We are updating our full year commercial Medicare medical membership guidance from down 125,000 to 165,000 to down approximately 200,000. In addition, we are reducing our revenue guidance for the segment by 200 million at the midpoint, reflective of the lower membership expectations. Full year pre-tax earnings for the segment remain on track, aided by the specialty outperformance. I will now discuss our healthcare services businesses. Recall that the segment had a strong start to the year with pharmacy meaningfully outperforming in the first quarter, which we expected to persist throughout the year, although with some moderation. Pharmacy results in the second quarter tracked in line with our increased expectations. Mail order penetration was 38.5% year to date for our individual Medicare Advantage members, a 90 basis point increase year over year. Primary care organization results were slightly favorable to expectations for the quarter, driven by ongoing operational improvements combined with administrative expense favorability. We added four de novo centers and 10 wholly owned centers through acquisition in the second quarter, bringing our total center count to 222 after center consolidations. We are on pace with our targets for the year and continue to expect to operate approximately 250 centers by year end. Turning to the home. Home health episodic admissions are up 3.1% year over year, while total admissions are up 4.9% year over year, consistent with expectations. For the full year, we continue to expect total home health admissions to be up mid-single digits. The hospice business performed well in the quarter with total admissions up approximately 5% year over year, driven by increased access to facility-based referral sources and incremental investments in the business to expand clinical capacity. The Kindred Hospice Divestiture is on pace to close in the third quarter. We have updated our full year guidance ranges to reflect this anticipated transaction, resulting in a reduction in healthcare services segment revenue of approximately 400 million at the midpoint, which reflects the hospice divestiture, partially offset by the increased pharmacy expectations discussed in the first quarter. In addition, we have reduced our full year consolidated adjusted operating cost ratio guidance from a range of 13.2% to 14.2% to a range of 13% to 13.5% as the hospice business carries a higher operating cost ratio than the company's consolidated operating cost ratio. From a capital deployment perspective, we anticipate a customary level of share repurchases in 2022 and expect our debt to capitalization ratio to be in the low 40s at the end of the year as we utilize, utilize proceeds from the Kindred Hospice Divestiture to deleverage. Before closing, I would again reiterate that we are pleased with our performance to date, fueled by broad-based strength across the enterprise, supporting our full-year guidance raise and providing capacity to make additional investments in marketing and distribution in the back half of 2022 to further support our improved 2023 Medicare Advantage product offerings. We are well positioned to achieve our $1 billion value creation goal, which has allowed further investment in our Medicare Advantage offerings for 2023 and expansion of our healthcare services capabilities while remaining on track to generate earnings growth in 2023 within our long-term target range. With that, we will open the lines up for your questions. In fairness to those waiting in the queue, we ask that you limit yourself to one question. Operator, please introduce the first caller. Certainly. 
Our first question comes from the line BMO Capital Markets. Pardon me, Matt. Please check your mute button. Matt Borsch, please check your mute button. Your line is now open. Our next question comes from the line of Justin Lake with Wolf Research. Thanks. Good morning. Can you hear me? I can. Hi, Justin. Uh, uh, Good morning. Uh, So I'm going to try to squeeze in a couple of uh, numbers questions. Uh, First on... uh, MLR in the quarter. It sounded like uh, you know the MLR had some moving parts, but was in line-ish, give or take, with your own expectations. Uh, obviously, you know consensus was a little bit uh, lower than this. So I was hoping you gave us some MLR, some EPS seasonality. You know, given your retail business still has a hundred basis points of uh, of a range, maybe you could tell us where you think you're going to be in that range for the back half of the year, and to think about three Q versus four Q. So we so. Uh, People like me don't mismodel it again for uh, for the back half. And then on the divestiture, Susan, can you can you walk us through the numbers a little bit more? I mean, the uh, you know the 65 cents is a little bit bigger than uh, I had expected, and you know just trying to understand how much you know revenue are you selling annualized, how much profit was there, what are you doing with the divestiture proceeds in terms of just like mathing out? Because if you're 65 cents for let's just say a third of the year of dilution. That would indicate to me that you have another dollar thirty next year of dilution, so that's a pretty decent headwind to next year. And just how do you offset that? Because it sounds like you reiterated the eleven to fifteen percent growth next year. Thanks yeah. for all that. Sure, Justin. I'll try to address those. Um, so yes, in terms of MLR, as you said, um, internally it is meeting our expectation. Um, as you mentioned, you know, analyst expectations did vary. I think there was on the consolidated MER about a 200 basis point spread in analyst expectations and about 150% basis point spread in retail. There is a wide variation. What came out in terms of consensus was based on just a few who happened to respond to the survey. So we do want to reiterate that what we were seeing internally from an individual Medicare Advantage perspective, we are seeing better than expected results and better than expected MER based on the primarily the lower inpatient utilization we mentioned. Um, within this segment, though, as we said, there is some mixed impact um, in terms of the higher Medicaid membership that comes with the higher MER typically, as well as the group Medicare pressure that we mentioned in my commentary. Um, but when you consider all of that, as we said, we are very pleased with our performance, um, and in particular the strength of the individual MA improvement, which you know is reflective of the more conservative pricing approach we took in our, in our bids that we've been talking about all year. For the full year, we also remain confident um, in what we are seeing. You know, we'll certainly continue to watch the emerging trends to see if that, you know, results in any additional favorability in the back half of the year relative to our estimates. Um, but currently, we are forecasting that we will be in line with our expectations um, for the retail segment for the year, despite the higher Medicaid membership and group MA pressure. On the hospice transaction, as far as the divestiture, you're correct. The 65 cents is reflective of um, the expectation that we will close that divestiture um, in the third quarter. It is a little bit higher than you might expect if you just run rate some of the numbers that we shared when we did the initial transaction. There's about 1.5 billion in revenue associated with that segment. Um, the reason that there's a little bit higher dilution is the fact that the entity expects to take on debt um, once it divests. Um, so the interest expense, particularly in this rate environment, is a little bit higher 
than we had initially expected in our guide at the first quarter, and then also some of the dis-synergies that will occur as a result of operating independently from the home health organization. All of that was considered um, when we contemplated the divestiture, and so as we've been thinking about 2023 planning, we were contemplating the divestiture of that position, and so you know we still expect to deliver within our long-term targeted range and be able to cover the impact of the hospice transaction, which we continue to believe is the right thing to do strategically. As for the proceeds, as we've said before, we do intend to use the majority of those proceeds to pay down debt to deliver on the Humana side, which will allow us to get back down to about the low 40s, as we mentioned in my commentary. Thanks. Welcome. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Matt Borsch with BMO Capital Markets. All right, let's try it this time. Can you hear me? Hi, Matt, we can hear you. Okay, great. Sorry about my mute button malfunction. Um, I was just obviously uh, uh, quite quite a bit here. Um, maybe I could just ask about the inpatient higher unit costs that you uh, mentioned. Is that simply a function of lower admissions and therefore higher acuity on what remains, or is that reflecting some other factors that maybe you could touch on? Yeah, Matt, good question. Um, and we spoke to some of this in the first quarter um, as we were seeing this in our and accounted for it in our first quarter estimate. So if you recall, some of it is, as you said, just the reflection of when you see lower inpatient utilization, typically some of the lower cost admissions are the ones that are no longer occurring. And so you tend to see a little bit higher unit cost than what's left over. Um, so we did see some of that. But we did see some higher just unit costs for certain underlying procedures, um, and we continue to evaluate that. And as I mentioned, in our second quarter intra-year development, we were pleased to see some of that moderate um, relative to what we had seen um, and booked as of the first quarter. So we will continue to, to watch that. The one other thing I would point out, and we mentioned this in the first quarter, some of the reason we're seeing lower inpatient volumes is a continued shift of procedures from the inpatient to the outpatient setting. And when that occurs, that typically um, re results in activity that is lower than average unit cost within the inpatient setting, shifting to that outpatient setting, also putting um, pressure on the unit cost. That was something that we had not fully anticipated as we entered the year. CMS, if you recall, reinstated the inpatient only list. And so we did not expect to see continued shifting, um, both in our utilization and unit cost estimates. And so as we've seen that continue to um, transition despite um, CMS's actions, we saw the benefits of that on utilization, but then some increase to the unit costs. Um, the unit costs are still higher than, you know, all of that said than we would have expected, so we'll continue to watch that and see if in the coming months that doesn't continue to moderate. Um, we have great visibility in real time to inpatient utilization, but to fully evaluate the unit costs, we're dependent on those claims coming in um, over time, and so we'll continue to watch that and, and keep you apprised of what we're seeing. Just a quick follow-up. Is there any driver that you know of for the shift to outpatient? It's primarily orthopedic, um, which we saw in 2021 as well. Um, and so we saw significant shifts in 21 and continue to see additional shifts, and it is primarily in the orthopedic space. Okay. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Kevin Fishback with Bank of America. Great, thanks. Um, want to try and better understand, um, you know, what you're doing around 2023 growth. You're committing to reaccelerating growth, um, and obviously part of that is driven by the, the billion dollars of cost saves that you've identified, but then trying to understand a little bit how the outperformance and reinvestment into growth affects 
that. Um, it sounds like that's in addition to whatever you did on the benefit side um, and um, we're already planning to do from the marketing side. I just want to make sure I understand that. And then also the outperformance in, in retail uh, or individual MA, was that captured when you submitted your bids or is that something that's, that's kind of developed more favorably since you submitted your bids? Sure, Kevin, how do you take that? Um, in terms of 2023 growth, um, you know, we are very pleased with the progress we've made on the billion dollar value creation goal. And as we've been saying, the intent is to use the benefit of that work to primarily support investment in our Medicare business, but also support some, some acceleration within our healthcare services capabilities. And within the Medicare business, um, we've commented that, you know, the majority of the dollars that will be directed to Medicare will support improved value proposition in our Medicare Advantage offerings, but also support increased investment in marketing and distribution to support that. Um, as we completed um, all of the planning work um, by the Medicare organization as they thought through their product strategy, I would say the Medicare team was really pleased with the capacity that that billion-dollar value creation effort created for them, and they feel really good about the investments it allowed them to make and are feeling confident that we will be able to demonstrate significant improvement in our Medicare growth in 2023. As Bruce mentioned in his comments, we had a chance to meet with our distribution, external distribution partners um, recently and share some of those details, and we're really pleased with the reaction um, and positive sentiment um, and optimism expressed uh, and commitment to returning to growth that our investments demonstrated. In our commentary this morning, um, we were pleased to announce that, you know, given the outperformance we've seen in 2022 and the second quarter in particular, that did give us some capacity to invest some of that outperformance into additional marketing and distribution that's anticipated to support the 2023 AEP. Um, and we, you know, felt really strongly that given the, the amount of investment we made in our Medicare products for 23, wanted to certainly make sure we appropriately supported it with marketing and distribution investments to ensure that we maximize the return off of those investments. Um, so the team's really thrilled with what we've been able to do, and, and we're feeling confident. We'll obviously have to see how the landscape data comes out to see exactly how we're positioned and refine our estimates, um, and we typically give you some sense in our third quarter call, so I'm not prepared to do that today. Um, but do you want to express that we feel very um, optimistic and confident that we'll see significantly higher growth um, relative to 2022 off the strength of the investments that we've made. In terms of the lower utilization, um, I would see, you know, we certainly talked in our first quarter commentary of some of the utilization depression that we saw. I would say, though, generally, we attributed that to COVID at that time. As you recall, we were seeing a much faster decline in COVID hospitalizations with this latest surge than we'd seen previously. And so we attributed the lower non-COVID utilization to simply a slower bounce back um, because that was not anticipated generally. So when you think about our bids, we would not have anticipated any of the favorability we've seen this year to signal sort of sustained below baseline utilization or medical costs and would have assumed in 2023 a more you know, steady state sort of normal course level of medical cost trend. Um, so to the degree we see further improvement that we think is reflective of just lower core trend, um, then that would be favorable to what we would have anticipated at the time of bids. All right, great, thank you. Welcome. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of AJ Rice with Credit Suisse. Uh, hi everybody, uh, thanks. Um, Maybe just to clean up quickly um, some of the questions that have been already asked. I know you're saying hospice is a headwind for next year and value creation is a positive. I wonder if I could broaden it out and get you to talk about at this early day without giving guidance what your um, 
headwinds and tailwinds are in a major buckets for next year, and and maybe also with the 11 to 15 percent uh, growth target, what's the jumping off point in your mind for uh, 2022 uh, to get to that? And then, Bruce, you mentioned uh, the reorganization, uh, insurance business, and special and services business. It sounds like that's mostly to facilitate better coordination internally. Uh, can you tell us where some of those opportunities are? And then second, is this a prelude to the services businesses beginning to focus on external clients more? I know Home Health does that already, but uh, I wondered uh, the PBM and some of those other areas that have historically just supported Humana, are you thinking about opening that up? Let's just take the first question. Hey, AJ, yeah, I'll take the first and then transition it to Bruce. Um, as it respects 2023, our first quarter commentary did confirm that you can think about the baseline for 23 as the 2450 um, that we adjusted to then. Um, I would say that for right now, we're not going to comment on any further adjustment to the 2023 baseline, or 2022 baseline, rather, for 23. And that's just because we've got our investor day conference scheduled for September 15th, where we do intend to talk about our long-term growth expectations, and so don't want to get in front of any of that. Um, but I will say that, you know, broadly speaking, as we think of thought about our bid planning and our planning for 2023, you know, we were mindful of our, you know, stated long-term growth target. Um, there's always a variety of puts and takes that go into every, you know, the planning every year. I would say some of the known headwinds um, would, be, would have been obviously the, the anticipated hospice divestiture that has always been contemplated in our thinking for 23, so that's not a surprise. More recently, you know, we have seen the proposed rate, uh, negative rate adjustment for home health. That would not have been something we previously contemplated. Um, and we'll have to see ultimately where the final proposal comes out and whether that um, sees some improvement relative to the current proposal. But that would be something that we hadn't contemplated and one of those puts and takes we'd have to manage. Um, from a positive perspective, you know, certainly membership growth in 2023, we're expecting to see improvement. Um, we'll have to see as AEP plays out whether that is more favorable than we might have expected, which could be a positive. Um, and also the medical cost trends, obviously, that we're seeing this year, as I mentioned in my commentary, we'll continue to evaluate those and see whether some of that continues to be, you know, positive through 2023. We always um, have to think about then any risk adjustment implications of any utilization variation that we see, and we'll certainly be mindful of that. Um, and I would say the one other thing we continue to watch is flu. Um, we've seen very low flu the last few years. Some of the early indicators um, from Australia in particular do suggest a higher flu season um, for the fourth, potentially for the fourth quarter. So we continue to watch that. Um, but again, that would be one of those puts and takes that we continue to watch. Um, so a variety of things, but I would say nothing um, that's such an outlier that, that is giving us concern at this point, um, but rather normal course things that we would manage through um, for 2023. And then Bruce, do you want to Yep. AJ, just on the on the uh, segmentation and, and the recruiting of a, a new president, a few things from that. First, we are seeing in our work on the billion dollars some really great opportunity to create some simplification and, and uh, the ability to leverage a number of our different areas uh, within the insurance area. So there's a lot of work now going into really consolidating service centers uh, into one service center. The ability to use our clinical programs, not only in the Medicare side, but also in our in our commercial book of business uh, in a much more integrated way. And then the third area, we're seeing a lot of work uh, being done and being able to utilize a lot of our, our consumer technology. 
And so in the, in the work that we've done in the simplification through our, through our billion dollar initiative, we just saw some great opportunity to be able to, to bring it together in a much more efficient way. In addition, what we do see in our work in the local markets of being able to integrate our, our various different uh, healthcare services that there's a wonderful opportunity. We refer to it as, as the flywheel and we'll provide you a further update on at the investor meeting on September 15th about the ability to integrate across uh, the various different services and be able to create a much more holistic approach and being able to move from primary care to home and even into our pharmacy uh, utilization, both mail order and on site. And so we see the opportunity to, to, to leverage that along with the fact that you brought up the payer agnostic. We do see some great opportunity today, both center well primary care and the home are agnostic and continue to, to see great growth serving both other payers and other parts of the Medicare, Medicare system. And at the same time, we're also seeing opportunity within our primary, within our pharmacy area to offer some agnostic opportunities there. So, so the ability for to integrate and also to expand uh, beyond the Medicare side of the business is really at the heart of what you, you see us uh, more formally creating the center wealth service side while on the insurance side, continuing to leverage the efficiencies across the various different insurance platforms. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Welcome. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Nathan Rich with Goldman Sachs. Good morning. Uh, thanks for the questions. Um, you know, you, you talked about utilization in the individual MA business running favorable to expectations. Um, is the, the lower admits per thousand that you called out, um, is that uh, related to COVID or are you also seeing favorability on, on non-COVID utilization as well? And um, can you talk about what you expect over the balance of the year? And then, um, Susan, could you also address the, the increase in days claims payable in the quarter? What drove that and, and what you were expecting in the, in the guidance? And given that it is sort of above the, the longer term rate that you target, you know, how you expect, expect that to trend over the balance of the year? Sure, Nathan, happy to answer that. Um, so as you mentioned, we are seeing lower inpatient utilization, which we have seen all year. Um, the first quarter, we did see certainly a faster decline in COVID. That's obviously now subsided. Um, as we've gotten further away from that last surge, we've continued to see lower inpatient utilization. As we've analyzed it, there are a few things um, that are primarily driving that. Um, one is lower flu. As I mentioned, we have seen lower levels than historical. That, you know, impacted the first half of the year. That will certainly moderate in the third quarter because you see low flu activity in general. And as I mentioned, we'll have to watch and see um, how flu develops in the fourth quarter. Um, for right now, we are assuming that we don't return fully to sort of pre-COVID levels, but rather it's, it's some moderation from that. But we are assuming it doesn't run quite as low as we have seen through the pandemic. We'll have to watch and see um, how flu develops in the fourth quarter. Um, for right now, we are assuming that we don't return fully to sort of pre-COVID levels, but rather it's, it's some moderation from that, but we are assuming it doesn't run quite as low as we have seen through the pandemic. We also saw, as I mentioned, continued inpatient to outpatient shifts. Um, that was something, as I said, we did not contemplate in our initial guide, and so that's positively impacting um, the inpatient utilization. We are seeing some higher unit costs as a result in utilization. We are seeing some higher unit costs as a result 
But as I mentioned, on the non-inpatient side, while we're seeing that higher utilization, we are seeing in total, though, slightly positive um, overall non-inpatient non cost relative to expectations. So we've been able to absorb that higher uh, volume shift within the non-inpatient estimates as well. Um, and then we are seeing some improved um, impact from some of our utilization management programs. They're also positively impacting inpatient activity. So other than the flu that um, will moderate some, um, we don't have any reason to think that inpatient to outpatient or the positive utilization management um, impacts won't continue for the rest of the year. And so that is contemplated in our full year guide. In terms of DCP, as you said, um, it is up three days sequentially. Um, and that was primarily driven, um, as you can see in some of our disclosures, by um, additional provider accruals, as well as fee-for-service um, days and claims payable. And so is reflective of a stronger reserve positioning as of the end of the second quarter versus what you saw first quarter. Um, you can also see that reflected in the higher IBNR um, trends relative to premium. I think our IBNR trends were up 2.9% versus premium trends of about 1.9%. So we think reflective of an appropriately conservative posture um, with respect to reserves at the end of the second quarter. Next question, please. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Joshua Raskin with Nephron Research. Hi, thanks. Sir. Good morning. Um, my question is, how do you accelerate the movement of membership to value-based care providers other than sort of building out the capacity? How are you working with the centers or external partners to get more of the MA lives into value-based care next year? Yeah, that, that's a constant work for us, and we are up a little bit this quarter as a result of of, of our efforts. A, f a few things there. We, we continue to look at for partners that are uh, apt to wanting to move to value base. Uh, and we've seen some really great opportunities there, especially over the last um, year or so as we've exited out of COVID. Uh, the ability for us to then provide resources for them in the, uh, in the both the technology area and the human resource area to allow them to make that transition and then provide them a contract that allows them to to appropriately manage that risk. Sometimes they want to take uh, just upside risk. Sometimes they want to take up and down risk with some kind of collar or full risk. So we really want to walk with them as they evolve in, into their uh, risk tolerance. But what we see the most is, is really uh, building on the partnerships that we have and growing our membership base in those partnerships. And what we've seen in, in a number of markets where we've had once a a fairly antagonistic relationship with both hospital systems and physician groups that they've evolved to be very positive. And as they evolve to positive, we see much more membership growth in that, in that um, relationship, which has been very positive for us. Uh, what we also measured there, Josh, is, is not only what how many members we have in value base, but also their surplus because we could get them into value base, but if they're not really performing both in the STARS, a risk adjustment, and in addition, the health outcomes, it's really for not. And so a lot of the work we're doing not only is about getting more members in there, but also making it more effective for our members to be, I mean, our value-based relationships to be more effective. Uh, we've been averaging, you know, in the 60s, the mid-60s, we've increased a little bit this, this uh, year. 
I would suspect that we will continue to see more members, but also as our membership growth grows, it all, that percentage doesn't move as much. And so we are getting more and more members in there, but on a percentage basis, it might not look like we're moving as much, but, but we are actually both effectively getting more members in there, but as importantly, being much more effective in the way that we're performing as value-based um, providers are getting more into the surplus. And Josh, I would add to what Bruce mentioned, um, I think in terms of some specific things we do to try to encourage, um, you know, the utilization of those high-performing providers, we certainly work with our distribution partners who have an opportunity at the time of enrollment to help with PCT selection. And so they're certainly educated on all the benefits of those high-performing primary care providers and know who they are um, in each market and can help with that. Um, we certainly work to make sure our provider you know, sort of physician finder tools um, that both agents and consumer use, you know, properly reflect sort of the quality and the services that are available by those providers. And you'll see that if you ever go out to the site um, and how those providers are ranked based on cost and quality. Um, and then finally, I would say, you know, certainly our provider organization um, and our health plans work in coordination on marketing efforts um, and continue to try um, various campaigns and, and learn what's um, proving to be effective in driving greater awareness um, and adoption of those um, high-performing models. So all of those things, I think, contribute in addition to what Bruce mentioned to some of the progress that we've seen. Gotcha. And then if I could just sneak in, I just want to confirm, Susan, did you say that the baseline for 22 is still the 2450 and has not changed, or were you just saying we'll update it at, on September 15th? Yeah, I think, that, you know, given that we've got the September 15th investor day coming up where we've, you know, con committed to providing an update on our, how we think about our long-term EPS growth range, we would just prefer to wait and have that discussion in investor day more comprehensively versus, you know, a discrete sort of commentary on, on the baseline today. So we, it's not that we're saying it won't change. We just want to go ahead and provide a more comprehensive update on September 15th. Perfect. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Ricky Golwasser. Yeah, hi. Good morning, and thank you for all the details. Um, so, Bruce, a question for you. I mean, clearly there, there's a lot of moving parts in core utilization, but, but just as we think kind of like big picture, two and a half years into the pandemic, um, you're seeing that move to sort of lower cost inpatient. You talk a lot about home telehealth. What are you seeing in the market as, as you think about things? How do you think about sort of just kind of like structurally sort of core utilization? Because I'm assuming that that's something that, that will will, you know, be part of how you're thinking about those long-term targets that you're going to provide us in September. Yeah, we continue to believe two things are happening in the, in, that are structural changes in healthcare. One is around the continued movement to uh, a specialty-oriented mindset to, to more generalist, whether that's primary care, but also the ability to leverage nursing uh, and, and physician assistants, et cetera. So just who's doing the work, we see that continuing to be pushed down. And then the second thing that we see is, is where it's being um, conducted and how the procedures are being and the interventions are being offered. And we see a continued movement to more convenient settings that are also more cost effective. So uh, moving, you know, obviously the outpatient's been a long, long term, term, term trend, but in addition, moving to the uh, primary care office, but moving to the home, moving to telehealth, and in, in addition, leveraging digital. And so we see that all moving towards a much more proactive and convenient setting, leveraging um, uh, many other professional clinicians 
in, into the healthcare system. And we see that as an opportunity to continue to not only drive down where the cost is, but also the health outcomes where we can continue to be much more proactive in the ability to slow down disease progression and really prevent preventable events. Next question. So, sorry, sorry, Ricky. Uh, so I'm just kind of like thinking how you kind of like think about that as, as you think about MLR. I mean, clearly you saw kind of like the MLR in the quarter that was a little bit higher than 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 um, than street expectations. But but are you starting to see that impacting the MLR when you uh, parse out the membership mix? Yeah. So Ricky, I'll take that. So I would say, um, as you mentioned, while MLR, you know was different than and didn't meet consensus. That's, again, reflective of how I mentioned earlier. There's a wide range in the consensus estimates. Um, those are not necessarily reflective of internal estimates. And so relative to our internal estimates, we did see um, outperformance, particularly in our individual MA um, business. And so it's important to keep that in mind. I would say that we are seeing so far, you know, certainly in ER use um, and observations, they are, you know, continue to run lower than we saw pre-COVID. Some of that I do think is probably reflective of people seeking out other sites of care that are more appropriate, whether that's physician and urgent care, um, that they became accustomed to during the pandemic and it's continued. We do acknowledge, however, that we know there's capacity constraints within the healthcare system today. How much impact that's having on some of the lower utilization, it's hard to know for sure. And that is something I think on the longer term trajectory, we're going to have to continue to monitor and see ultimately where the utilization levels come in. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, the higher mortality as a result of COVID, as we've said, has an impact on medical cost trend and overall utilization um, and a negative trend because those that passed away due to COVID um, tended to be higher, um, you know, utilizers, they had multiple comorbidities, and so that's also reflected in our estimates, um, and we'll see continued impacts from that going forward. Um, but otherwise, I would say a lot still to be learned. We are seeing some favorability, and we'll have to continue to assess um, the team's thinking on how much of that will continue into 2023, but might see some moderation as capacity hopefully starts to return within the clinical community. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Stephen Baxter with Wells Fargo. Yeah, hi, thanks. Um, just wanted to ask about the guidance to make sure I can follow what you're doing there. It sounds like the quarter was a dollar better, and then I think you also removed 50 cents of the conservatism. So that sounds like a dollar fifty of favorability, although maybe there's some double counting between those items. Uh, then you're reinvesting 75 cents, and I think I heard you say there's an extra 15 cents of dilution from the hospice to that shirt. Um, seems like those, those items in aggregate would result in a guidance increase above the 25 cents, so I'm clearly – missing something can you understand that you know help us understand how you see the moving parts there and how we should be thinking about that thank you hi Stephen. happy to do that um so yes yeah, so the outperformance for the quarter was a dollar um that does though include what you can think of as the 50 cent conservatism that we had included in our original guide in the first half of the year related to covid so you can consider that as us releasing the 50 cents of conservatism within the the second quarter results um, and part of the dollar not additive to it um, we have maintained the 50 cents in our back half of year estimates, um, as I mentioned in my commentary, however. So as you think about the dollar and then how we've used the dollar, 25 cents goes to the guidance raise, the 75 cents of additional marketing and distribution investments, that was not previously contemplated in our full year guidance, and so 75 cents is being used for that. And then as you mentioned, we have um, acknowledged 15 cents of additional hospice dilution that was not contemplated in the revised guide as of the end of the first quarter. 
So technically that's a little bit more than a dollar, um, and that just recognizes that we do have still the 50 cents of COVID contingency in the back half, um, and we also have, you know, any continuation of the outperformance we've seen in the second quarter that might trend into the third and fourth quarters, um, which is reasonable to think that we may see some additional improvement relative to our current estimates. Um, so that's how we think about the dollar and how we've spent it um, based on the current performance. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Scott Fidel with Stevens. Hi, thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, was hoping you could just drill a bit more into the proposed uh, 4% home health cuts for next year. And, and I guess sort of two parts to that. You know, one, um, if, if those cuts actually did go forward uh, in the final, how much impact you would see on uh, home health, you know, margins or EBITDA, and then how that influences the, the shift that you're making over to value-based care. I would assume that that would even, even sort of further motivate the acceleration over to VBC contracting from fee-for-service, but just interested in how you would think about that if the cuts did go through. Thanks. Hi, Scott. Yeah, happy to take that. Um, so as you said, this is a 4%, you know, rate reduction that's proposed. We certainly are, you know, we'll continue to advocate and educate in terms of just some, you know, while it's predicated on the behavioral adjustment as the driver of that, um, you know, we certainly want to make sure that people also consider the inflationary environment, the, you know, challenges with clinician labor. I think there's broad support for continued um, shift of care to the home um, and the benefits of home health care. And so we do hope to see some moderation that's more reflective of the current cost trends um, within the space. But if it were to, to move forward as proposed at about the 4% cut, um, for the enterprise, you can think of that as about a $30 million impact. Um, it's slightly higher for the Kindred business specifically, but within our Medicare business, we, we did not contemplate that level of rate reduction in our thinking for the health plan for 23, and so there is some mitigation um, within the year relative to that. So that net impact at the proposed rate is about $30 million. Um, As you said, you know, given that rate um, cut, certainly there's more emphasis on value-based payment models. Um, we've seen that from, you know, other providers as well, um, which we're pleased to see. As it respects our plans, we were already well down the path of working on a value-based payment model. And as we, you know, Bruce said in his commentary, we were pleased to see that we were able to, to expand our value-based um, broader value-based home health, DME and infusion model in the state of Virginia this quarter as we had initially planned and remain committed to expanding that model to about 50% of our MA members um, within the next five years. So we're, I think, ahead of that curve, but we are encouraged um, by some of the discussions we're having with some other home health providers who I think are becoming more focused on value-based payment models, um, which we do think, you know, is important and will provide an opportunity to get after some of the, you know, adverse, you know, implications in terms of hospitalizations and avoidable admissions that we think home health has you know, an opportunity to impact um, if they become more focused on it. So we're pleased with that. And Scott, just to add to Susan's comments, I, I think over time you're going to continue to see this as being a great opportunity to leverage home health as being much more proactive as opposed to oriented to just the fee-for-service side and that more payment begins to be made on outcomes relative to lower um, emergency room visits and admissions, et cetera. And I, I, we are, we're excited about that change. Obviously, there's, there's you know, static in the air as a result of rate changes, but we do think rate changes will accelerate the move to value-based. Thank you. And our next question even comes from Valaket with Barclays. Great, thanks. Good morning, everybody. So, 
Uh, in this earnings season, we heard one of your uh, major peers talk about the annual wellness visits among their MA members, only now tracking back to uh, pre-pandemic levels. So I guess I was curious to hear how that's progressing for you guys so far this year relative to your book, what the early implications might be for MRA payments you might receive next year in 23 uh, versus 22. And also, I'm not sure if I missed this, but you, if you have any uh, just the color on the MRA payments that you might have re uh, just received in 22 uh, relative to your expectations, that would also be great. Thanks. Hi, Stephen. Um, happy to answer that. So in terms of annual wellness visits, um, I would say our experience um, this year is in line with expectations. Um, so no significant outperformance or underperformance, but generally in line um, and haven't heard anything um, in terms of any concerns in terms of the ability to get into patients' homes. So I think that's um, tracking as expected. Um, in terms of MRA for 2023, certainly, as I mentioned, you know, to the degree we continue to see lower utilization in 2022, um, relative to expectations, we'll certainly do, you know, the assessment to understand whether there would be any implications to 23 risk adjustment, but I would expect net-net for that still to be positive, um, even after considering MRA. On the group MA side, where we're seeing higher utilization, as you think about 2023, we would expect to see some mitigation as a result of that with increased MRA expectations as well. So it works both ways. Um, in terms of 2022, we did um, receive the mid-year payment, and I would say it's generally in line with expectations, maybe just slightly positive, um, but broadly in line with expectations, so no meaningful variance there. Okay, that's perfect. Thanks. You're welcome. And our next question comes from the line of David Winley with Jefferies. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my question. I was I was hoping to um, follow up on margin progression as a topic and thinking, particularly in retail, you'll expect to have a bigger incoming membership cohort in uh, 23, which will not be coded, you know, relatively lower margin. You'll have a smaller cohort kind of maturing out of 22. And then I presume you'll have some offsets from investments from the value creation billion dollars. I guess I'm just wondering how we should think about the relative toggle of revenue growth versus margin expansion contribution to your earnings growth in 23, if you're willing to talk about it. Hi, David. Yeah, happy to address that. Um, so as we think about it, as you said, you know, the higher 23 membership growth, um, as you mentioned, does tend to bring members um, who would have lower margins um, until they're appropriately coded over time. We get their star scores up, et cetera. Um, so that is true. But keep in mind that we are also anticipating, as a result of our product investments, that we will also see higher retention. And so the higher retention that we'll see, those are going to be members who will positively contribute. So ultimately, we'll just have to see what the ultimate mix um, is, um, you know, from a combination of sales and retention in terms of any, you know, year-over-year -year change that that might um, imply in terms of the margin. Um, in terms of the investment that we've made, um, as you mentioned, you know, the billion-dollar value creation goal, that is going to generate savings across the enterprise, so it will not obviously be fully generated within the Medicare organization, but we intend to disproportionately invest those savings into the Medicare organization. So all in, you would think of that from a, just a pure individual MA perspective as being somewhat dilutive to the margin because we will be investing more dollars in, this, in that product than the savings that 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 line of business alone will generate. Within retail, we'll get some further offset, obviously, from the savings that the rest of the retail organization will contribute, but then some will obviously be outside of that retail segment. 
Um, so we'll certainly give you some more visibility to that um, as we talk in September about how we're thinking about our margin progression um, and EPS growth over time. Um, but for right now, those are some of the bigger things that you can think about impacting 2023. That's helpful. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of George Hill with Deutsche Bank. Yeah, uh, good morning, guys, and thanks for taking the question. Uh, I think a lot of my topics have been covered, just two quick numbers ones. I guess, Susan, on the 75 cents in marketing spend, I guess, can you talk about where that's going more specifically? How much do you think about is going to brokers versus maybe member outreach, given that retention uh, was an issue in 22? Yeah, George, happy to do that. Um, so we've been talking a lot about just, you know, our distribution strategy and the goal of over time trying to um, see a little bit more volume shift back to our proprietary channels to create a little bit more balance and also recognizing that we tend to see um, better retention and customer satisfaction in our proprietary channels versus external. So as you think about the incremental investment that we're making um, year over year, we, that will be um, more weighted towards our internal channels um, in terms of the marketing and then investment and resources in our proprietary channels. Um, but some of it will be going to external partners as well to make sure that we, you know, get the, the return that we would expect and the, the growth out of that channel as well. Within the external um, partner support that we're providing, I would say some of it is going towards making sure that our um, reimbursement at sort of the sales partner level is on par with peers. I think we've talked before about the fact that we were trailing behind the compensation level that some of our peers were providing. So some of the dollars are going to address that and get to more of a parity position and also support some increased marketing um, in order to make sure that we can get the, the sales volume out of that channel that we would expect in order to achieve our overall um, improvement in Medicare growth. Okay, simple, thank you. Sure. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Gary Taylor with Cowan. Hey, good morning. Uh, just a quick uh, two-parter, just one numbers question and then uh, uh, my real question. Um, it looked like the proprietary uh, uh, shared um, risk providers went down 200 sequentially, um, and I presume most of those were, like, employed in your own center. So just wondering why that went down. Um, and then the broader question I wanted to ask about 23, glad to hear you're still, you know, optimistic and confident about, you know, higher growth in 23, but just wondering conceptually, is there an enrollment growth number that's, that's too high, that's, you know, that's too much? I mean, I, I think there's, I think there would be an over under on a growth number where the street would be worried about adverse selection and, and your benefit offering and, you know, impact on margin and that, that trade off. But wondering if you really think that's the case, or do you just look at the, the net present value of an incremental member and your ability to retain them, you know, and the earnings contribution over time and you're not really thinking about a higher bound as, as being an issue for 23? Hi, Gary. Yeah, I'll take your second question first, um, and we may have to get back to you on the first one. But for the second question, I'll say, um, you know, certainly, as I said a minute ago, new members do tend to pressure, um, they come with an, a lower underwriting margin um, and tend to be about break even, as we said, I think, in years past. So they can pressure sort of some of the returns that you might expect. I would say, though, given how the trends we've seen the last number of years and, you know, I think we've been really smart about the investments we've made in 2023, we weren't trying to position ourselves to be in the number one sort of product value position everywhere that would re result in outsized growth or any 
thing that I can think of from an anti-selection perspective. So I'm not overly concerned about that. Um, I think, you know, we've stated, you know, our goal is to get back to industry-leading growth as quickly as we can. We'd love to do that in one year. We'll just have to see, you know, whether peers made other investments for 2023 and how our ultimate offerings stack up. But I would say that's not something that I'm, I'm concerned about. Um, in terms of your first question, Lisa, did you do you yeah. want to address that? Hey, Gary. So I think all that is, it's just a, a difference in the way we're kind of showing our PCPs related to some IPAs. And it's just really to ensure we're aligned with the new disclosures we're giving around our primary care business um, back in the stat pages. So no big shift there. It's just a, a little reporting difference that you're seeing there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Rob Cottrell with Cleveland Research. Hi, right, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Just wanted to dig into the divergent experience you're seeing in the individual MA book versus group MA. Uh, what is it about the group MA membership that you that utilization is higher than expected in 2Q and that you expect that to continue through the rest of the year? Sure, I'm happy to take that. So um, as I mentioned in my commentary, in 2021, we did see different um, utilization patterns across individual MA and group. Um, and as I mentioned, in group MA, we saw significantly more depressed utilization relative to individual. Some of that um, we attributed to the fact that we did see lower overall COVID hospitalizations in the group MA population. And we attribute that to the fact that they tend to have a higher vaccination rate than the individual. So we had lower COVID utilization, but similar levels of sort of depression and non-COVID utilization resulting in overall lower utilization in group MA. As we assess that going into 2022, you know, we also had to assess the impact of mortality um, as a result of COVID and, and what the resulting impact was to morbidity. Um, and as we've, you know, been able to review the trends that we're seeing, you know, at the, as we entered the year, we believe that some of that lower utilization was a reflective of lower morbidity. And I think based on the trends we've seen, what we would say is some of what we thought was lower morbidity has turned out to be more reflective of just deferred utilization and pent-up demand um, that's working its way through now. Um, we are seeing higher surgical volumes, um, in particular in group MA relative to individual. Um, the volumes are about, you know, 600 basis points higher year to date in the group MA side than individual. That's one of the reasons we have some you know, reason to believe that this may be to some degree reflective of pent-up demand that may still moderate um, in the back half of the year, and we'll certainly continue to monitor it. Um, but as I said, it is you know, trending a little bit differently. Some of that was probably just a reflection of sort of what we anticipated and, and allocated you know, and attributed to morbidity versus pent-up demand. We'll continue to watch it. Um, as I said, you know, as you think about 23, um, if this does persist, we would expect to, to mitigate some portion of it through higher risk adjustment than we previously contemplated, um, and we view it as, you know, on a net basis manageable within our 2023, um, but it is, you know, particularly reflective in the non-inpatient side, and like I said, we are seeing in particular some higher surgical volumes. Got it. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. I'm showing no further questions at this time. So with that, I'll hand the call back over to CEO Bruce Broussard for any closing remarks. Well, thank you, and thank everyone for your support and continued confidence in the organization. And obviously, I want to thank our 70,000 teammates that make, make this uh, successful company and this quarter be such a successful quarter. And then we do look forward to seeing each of you at our, at our September 15th virtual uh, investor conference that will go over a lot of uh, more details about our longer range views along with our um, continued uh, uh, drive.
services businesses. So again, I thank you and look forward to services businesses. So again, I thank you and look forward to seeing you on September 15th. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating, and you may now disconnect.